Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and I know that summer is starting and it's various temperatures all over the world, and there are a lot of occasions and holidays coming up. So I hope that you all are going to get a chance to enjoy some of that this year. I know some of you are already starting to catch up on episodes of Fraudology on your holiday. That's so humbling to me that you want to think about fraud and work as you're laying on the beach or in the mountains or wherever you choose to holiday and vacation. But I will keep going this summer. So know to keep checking in and obviously subscribe to the podcast. So when new episodes are out, I think some of the best interviews are yet to come. You got to hear from my dear friend Robert Caps on Tuesday and I hope that you learned a lot. He definitely was somebody who, like, there wasn't a playbook at all back, especially for a marketplace back when he became the head of Trust and Safety for StubHub. And so he had to do some trial and error. But some of the things that worked have now become best practices for fraud teams all over the world and Trust and Safety teams as well. So I'm really glad you got to hear that. And I think the week after next is when you'll get to hear him and Eric, who we referenced, who was the former Secret Service agent that then went on to build the investigations team for StubHub that was responsible for some pretty major headlines and some crazy stories. And I think that that will be really enjoyable. They have both agreed to do it, to record it soon. So hopefully that will be in just a couple weeks. So you have that to look forward to. I highly recommend that one for sure. I mean, I think all of them are great, but, and then next week we'll be listening to a conversation I've had with Jared Price at Incom. Incom does processing for gift cards, both closed loop and open loop. So any questions you've had about gift card fraud, whether they're card brand gift cards, which are also known as prepaid cards, there's a little bit of a difference between the two, but not a ton. And then also, or private label, like your own store brand gift cards. There's so much fraud on them, especially online. So we actually, full disclosure, have had that conversation already. And I can tell you, I cannot wait to have Jared back because we had such a good conversation. He packed it full of tips and information that I know you guys are going to be taking some notes on. And we also just had a great time talking both before and after. We ended up between the recording of about an hour and then the before and after talking for three hours, which is ridiculous. Both of us did not have that time, but it was enjoyable for sure. So we didn't get a chance to catch up when we were both at MRC in Vegas. So it was good to kind of catch up then. I'll introduce the elephant in the room, my voice. I feel like it, it probably doesn't sound as different to you as it does to me. I kept saying yesterday, I have to record a podcast. I can't scream too much. But then, you know, you're in the moment and it happens. Short story on the personal level with COVID and everything else. It's been hard, right, to not go to events. And I think it's been easy for me to think, oh, I'm fine being at home or whatever. 
But yesterday I got to go to a concert with 18,000 other people that was outdoors. In Washington State, there is an outdoor amphitheater that is in between the city. I used to live in between Seattle and the city I live in now. It's right in the middle of the state and it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. So hotels are between 45 minutes and an hour and a half away, but it's a magical place. And I've had the opportunity to see some really incredible artists there. And it's the kind of place where people just love to perform as well. And this was the first time I've been back at the Gorge since pre-COVID, I think uh, twenty uh, summer of 2019. My husband gifted me with tickets over the holidays in the winter for to see two of my favorite artists for the last 20 years. I feel like they've gotten me through hard times and good times. And just there was just so much nostalgia and joy. But I got to see Sarah McLaughlin and Brandi Carlisle. And I have been, like I said, fans of them for about 20 years each in different ways. Maybe Sarah a little longer. I, I know that's probably very stereotypical of a girl that grew up in the 90s, but I adore them. And I think the cool thing about music is that we all have what we love. And I think it's important to go out and share that. And it reminded me too, one of my good friends, well, you guys probably heard the episode with Holly Sandberg. She was at Pacchiolan at the time, and this was a long time ago. She plans to come back, but she has changed companies. And so it's taken her a little bit to adjust and get things under control at Ticketmaster. But she just loves working for live events and protecting people because she knows how important it is to have those experiences. And so halfway through, I texted her and said, thank you for keeping it safe and for approving leaves order. Anyway, I don't think there'd be any reason why she would. And actually, now that I think about it, she would, when he bought the tickets, she wasn't there. But yeah, so anyway, that is why I sound a little hoarse. I tried to wait till the end of the next day to kind of get it better, but I actually think it got a little bit worse. So anyway, I know my editors will smooth it out and stuff. And I'm certainly not as bad as I have been in the past, but I had a lot of fun last night. And they both, between the two of them, played it. I mean, and the opening act, it was six hours. Usually they have to end at 10 p.m., but they were told for a few different reasons that they could play all night. So I think the last song ended at 12. So we didn't get back to the hotel for about another hour after that or a little more. So anyway, I am sleepy and I have a little bit of a hoarse voice, but I definitely can always and want to always talk fraud. And I hope only half of you rolled your eyes just then because I think you guys like it too. So today there's just a couple things that I was thinking about what I wanted to highlight and talk about this week. And last week I had several conversations with leaders in fraud prevention about some of the challenges that they're going through right now. And specifically kind of that buzzword question, what keeps you up at night? Some of the things that are keeping them up at night may not be what you think. So, or it might just be different than what you're thinking of. So I was going to share the results of some of those conversations and some of the things I've learned from that. And then Additionally, there is an attached tip for vendors. That's something that I've been doing in the last few Thursday episodes, and I think that's been really popular. And I think that for the sake of both merchants and vendors, I'm going to be providing, I think, I'm going to try to provide at least one tip for salespeople and or people in the business side of vendors, of customer retention and customer success and account management. I think that will hopefully help the industry as a whole for those companies that take that advice. And please know that a lot of times that advice is coming, actually almost always, coming from merchants who tell me, oh my gosh, I wish they would just do this, or I wish they just understood that or whatever. And so 
it's not just Carice's opinion, it's the merchant opinion that they can't or for whatever reason don't feel comfortable telling you what they need. And I know that on the solution provider side, it can be really challenging because you're like, I thought we had a really good conversation. Why did you ghost me? Or can you just reply to an email and tell me you don't like it or whatever it is? And so I think that my hope is that that will help the industry. So I'll be trying to include that in some of the Thursday episodes. I'll try to do it in most of them, if not all. So we'll be talking about that first, but then the merchant issues and what they're going through now first, which I know a lot of merchants will relate to, and I will provide some tips on that. And then a related tip for solution providers to those issues. And then lastly, I just have a small, like a quick update on the saga that I talked about a couple weeks ago, which is the actor Seth Green's Bored Ape NFT was taken out of his account. Essentially, it was he responded to a phishing email. They got his username and password through that. Then they drained his account, including an NFT that's extremely rare through Bored Ape, which is very popular with celebrities. So it's been returned and he kind of paid a ransom of sorts. So I think there's some lessons there. And especially as people are starting to kind of wanting to learn more about crypto from a fraud prevention perspective and a compliance perspective, I think there's some lessons to be learned there as well. But first, a message from our sponsor, and then I will dive into those topics. A few weeks ago, I kind of had a premonition or a feeling and also just knew I can kind of tell the weather sometimes that you know, the fraud weather, I don't know if that's a thing, but that this recession is going to be challenging and going to require some pivoting for anyone that works in technology. It is definitely impacting tech in a way that tech hasn't been impacted before, or at least not in the last decade and a half or so. The last recession that hit the U.S., and I know there were global impacts to that as well, really started with real estate, and now it seems like it's starting with technology. Not too surprising, what goes up must come down, and there certainly has been a lot of valuations going way up, but lots of other factors as well. So unfortunately, that does impact the fraud prevention and trust and safety space in, in different ways. And I feel like just wanting to provide you guys with the information that you want to help to do your job better right now. And one way I can help you is to say, hey, this is what other people are dealing with. This is how they're doing it. This is kind of what I would suggest. And so I talked at length about some ways to recession improve your fraud department, showing your value and doing all of that. The last few weeks I've had some convert, especially last week, had several conversations with fraud leaders for very big companies as usual. I'm so lucky that they trust me and I'll often make time or ask to talk to me when there's something going on. We know that when inflation goes up and the economy goes down, that fraud will go up. So yeah, that's stressing fraud leaders out. But even more than that, you know, it, well, and let's go on that for a little bit more. So it was already rising at rapid speeds after government COVID funds ran out and those fraudsters didn't necessarily want to go back to a regular job. So they used those skills that they learned to steal COVID relief funds through unemployment and PPP, et cetera, to steal from online companies in various ways, especially fake accounts and everything related, as well as account takeovers are definitely high. I mentioned that on the, what was the episode called? It was something about, you know, online fraud is under attack or on the rise or something like that. I apologize for not having it off the top of my head. So I talked about all those things and stuff, but you know, how 
the invasion in Russia and then the impending sanctions because of Russia invading Ukraine has definitely provided a huge uptick in account takeover as well as ransomware account takeover, especially targeting digital items that can be shifted and moved away, moved out of the country. I mean, physical products are so much harder to get into Eastern European countries, especially Russia, but digital currency can move at the speed of the internet. And that's online gift cards, that's in-game currency, that is loyalty points in an Air Miles account. All of those things are, are really popular. So we already knew that fraud was going up, but now we have so much more with, and I've been predicting it'll be more the friendly fraud types and quotation marks, chargebacks from the legitimate cardholder, refund, claim fraud, promo code abuse, et cetera. And I'll just talk you a little bit more about that in a minute. So, however, just because fraud is going up doesn't mean that the organization, your organization in technology has an open checkbook. Unfortunately, fraud is still seen as a cost center. And I know from experience how challenging this is. And so in talking with fraud leaders, that is what's stressing them out more than anything. It's not necessarily the new types of fraud or just the huge increase in it. It's the fact that not only are they having a challenge getting digital funds for new technology and, and new resources, new full-time employees, but now a lot of them are being asked to cut their budgets for 2023, especially for companies in retail and marketplaces that provide physical goods. A lot of times they're setting up their budget for 2023 in Q3. And I can hear some people in sales being like, all right, I'm going to start hitting the pavement. I wouldn't recommend. Not that way anyway, because wait till I finish the rest before you start making cold calls and cold emails. So yes, budgets are being considered right now, but a lot of things are, they're not only being told, hey, I know you wanted to add that technology or this technology or replace something, or you had projects in the pipeline, et cetera, for next year, but we're not going to be able to fund those. But now they're being told they also have to cut their budgets by quite a bit. And that is really stressing them out. When the problem goes up, but the budget goes down, it can be really challenging. And it provides for some opportunities for creativity. And that's something that I actually really enjoy working with merchants to be like, hey, you actually don't need this extra tool, or you don't need that many people doing this. You could outsource that piece or this part you shouldn't do in-house you know all those little things and it really varies by company but i'm starting to take on a few more of those projects because I do kind of have a reputation for saving merchants a lot of money in a lot of different ways and i am grateful for it it's so much fun for me but it's still very challenging and hard and it's stressing them out because just because the budget goes down doesn't mean that the expectations go down it doesn't mean that the company is okay with reducing or increasing really the losses to the company if anything it's the opposite so just being on a tight wire and or is it a tight wire sorry you know what i mean tightrope yes i think it's a tightrope balancing it's a balancing act and i think it's it is a, there is always an opportunity to kind of look at costs and go okay are we paying enough for, or are we paying too much for this or does it have value or assessing the roi on every piece of your risk stack as well as the positions and all of that so that's a good exercise but it's so stressful when it's like okay so not only do i have a bigger need but now the budget's down and now the company all those things and also, I know from experience, because um, as I mentioned on a previous episode, I've worked for a startup kind of in retail during the last recession. And I saw some executives do crazy things. And I realized really fast that fear makes people do crazy things. And there's this air about it that just can also be very like emotionally draining on top of these mental exercises. But I know that a lot of executives will want to 
really put as many eggs, so to speak, in the basket of, I'm sure a lot of you have heard the the term, like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. I just realized that's probably like an Americanized term. They kind of want to focus everything and, and bet on customer acquisition and, and makes sense. But I would urge those of you who work with your executives to maybe share with them that at the same time, yeah, that is a good way to increase your top line. But at the same time, a lot of consumers are also looking ways for ways to cut costs. There's, I mean, gas prices are so high and everything else, right? We see it every day in the headlines and we feel it every day. It's costing more to live. And so there are some of them that, you know, some customers and some consumers, that means, okay, well, we're just going to cut back on the extras, which can often impact some of your bottom lines. But then on the other hand, customers who still want to get that item or have that service will look for ways to cut costs after they get that service. And that means things like friendly fraud chargebacks, saying that the item didn't come or that they didn't receive it or they didn't, or I guess it's the same thing, sorry, <laughs> or it wasn't as described. Or what often happens is they call their bank and say, well, I'm not sure what this charge was for. And their bank issues a chargeback because it was an online transaction and that falls on the merchant. We saw that go up so much that there wasn't even a term for friendly fraud or first party chargebacks until the last recession. I know I've said that a few times, but I think it's important to know. And now we have friendly fraud 2.0 which is refund claim fraud. And I've been talking about this for two and a half years, but it just keeps growing and growing. So I'm going to keep talking about it until it doesn't, which kind of feels like a lifetime. But, you know, I'm working on some stuff and I've mentioned that before. A standalone product that actually will have a very high ROI and, and be worth the investment to provide intelligence to reduce refund fraud. It is still very much in development, but I'm working on that as well as some other things. And I can't do it all alone, but that's, I think that that is definitely something the industry needs right now. And then in addition to refund fraud claims, both decent customers and from people who are maliciously doing this because it's now become their business, there's also a lot more promo code abuse, promotional code abuse. Especially if one of your company's ways of increasing customer acquisition is providing referral codes. So for instance, you know, refer a friend, you both get $25 off or whatever that that is, that can be a great reset, a great resource to add more customers. However, A, are those customers going to spend past the first time? But B, and even more importantly, can be very attractive to fraudsters, especially with bots and how much processing power is cheaper now. And so processing power is so much easier to create bot networks and scripted attacks. Do not forget that Bell had to disclose back in, I think, February or March was that they had to delete 4.5 million accounts because they did this. They offered a promotion for whenever, for a new user. I think it was $10 for anyone that opened up an account with PayPal or Venmo. PayPal owns Venmo. And what ended up happening was there was a full-on attack of bots just creating 4.5 million garbage accounts that never ended up spending any money. They, some of them might have done, if there was a requirement for one purchase, they'd do as small as possible, get that $10 and transfer it out. That hit PayPal for 45 million. So I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that that is an area that you need to focus on if that is your company's way of trying to survive this recession. And I, like I said, it obviously works, but just your job to make sure that the people who are redeeming those promotional codes, whether they're for new account signup or referrals or both, that they are who they say they are and that 
there's not a whole bunch of millions and millions of garbage accounts being created just to cash out on that. So I know that the budgets are just, it's very frustrating. It is very hard on you guys. I wish I could do more. I hope at the very least for those of you who are experiencing this now, or maybe your company doesn't do budgets till Q4 because you don't have such a huge holiday rush in Q4. Be aware of that and really work hard on communicating with leadership. This is a hard time. Be empathetic that they're trying to pull quarters of the couch cushions right now. But you can also be a really good asset on that. And you can go through and do an assessment of everything in your budget. Can you cut this? Can you cut that? I mean, obviously don't cut salaries for existing employees. If you need to lay people off, that is something I don't even want to like recommend one way or another. But maybe it's we were going to add this position, but we're just going to have to spread out the duties or whatever else. So, but on technology side, look at your providers. Are they providing what you need? Have they been responsive? Are they innovating? Are they providing, are they providing as good of a service as they did a few years ago? Look at how much you're paying. If you have had bigger volume since you signed that contract, go back to them, ask for a fee assessment change, explain to them the situation. Look, I'm going to have to turn off the service, because, you know, if we can't get this lower. And that won't be a lie because it's the truth right now. And I realize that unfortunately, the losses are going to have to be spread out across the ecosystem. But that's how companies survive. That's how people can keep their jobs. And that is a better alternative than the company ending and then not all of those solution providers not getting anything and you losing your job and everything else. So I think it's just really important to be proactive right now in messaging within the company and with leadership in assessing fees, etc. So that leads me to my vendor tip that's related. And I know you guys probably aren't going to like it, but I don't share information just to be liked. And that's just the way it is. I, and actually, I mean, it's, it's with love, right? So and that's what I usually tell my clients, like, I get it. It's not, I, I don't want to share this information either. Like if it's negative feedback that comes to me from a merchant that had an interaction with them or whatever it is. But I had one client recently I had to give some tough feedback to and he was like, you know what? I actually prefer that because I can act on it and I can improve. And he's like, and chances are if one person shared that with you, there's others. And he's like, if people tell us that we're great, like I can't do anything with that. I mean, I can just kind of continue what we're doing. But if you say, hey, if you just had this or if you just did that or if you explained this better, that actually helps me improve. So hope you have that attitude. This actually came up with my conversation with Jared before we started recording. And he's so right. So just like you've probably seen on LinkedIn or, or other places, how employers are losing a lot of people because maybe they hired a new person and, and paid them a higher salary because the market has gone up and it's for the same position that you've had somebody there for so long. There was somebody I saw and I wish I could remember the percentage, but he was saying like, there's actually a whatever, I, I want to say it was 7%, but I don't remember, but we'll just say for the sake of this 7% difference. There's like a loyalty tax for employees where if you were hired five, 10 years ago, you've had these slow raises and, and cost of living increases. But if you go for that same position now, you'd probably get more money at the front. And a lot of employees are looking at that. And especially in fraud, it's very competitive. There are a lot of your competitors that would love to hire people that have worked in fraud for your company. And that's happening a lot. So, I mean, just retention and all that, you hear that, that advice. And the same goes for solution providers. You guys, we all know that 
there are not sticker prices on fees, right? So you might say one fee, but you can go down to another fee or vice versa. There might be one company of a certain size that has a certain type of risk that pays one thing, but another merchant of the same kind of mix is paying quite a bit more or quite a bit less. I think the first thing is, and Jared and I were talking about that, he's like, I feel like they don't get that we talk to each other. He's like, I often will talk to people that I know that just signed up with a company I use and be like, hey, what's your pricing? Because I want to make sure I still have competitive pricing. It's smart business. It's smart management. And I know for experience, I mean, my very first consulting role when I opened Chargelytics was for a pretty big online company. And they hired me actually to do an assessment on their chargebacks. And I did. But first... In order to know their chargeback volume, I needed to look at their merchant processing statement for payments. And I'm not a payments expert, but I've been in that world. I started out there and I know it pretty well. And I looked at their statement and I was like, they are paying way too much to their payment processor. Not necessarily on interchange. I mean, there are some structural things that can be done to reduce interchange, but the amount that they are paying directly to their processor for processing, I happened to know, because I'm privy to this kind of information sometimes, that one of their competitors that actually had less volume than the company I was working with was paying one third in pricing to their processor than this company. It was insane how much money they were paying. And part of it was because they never negotiated after they blew up. They didn't know they were supposed to. They didn't have someone in charge of payments. They didn't know that was a possibility. So they just kept paying the same rate that they got when they first started at a lower volume and a higher risk. I was able to negotiate their payments contract down by quite a bit. I can't remember the exact, I want to say it was at least like $10 million a year. It was nine something a year in just the fees they were paying their payment processor that I was able to negotiate for them. They were on a current contract. It was with their current payment processor, but that payment processor recognized when they said, you know, hey, we hired a consultant and they say that we could go to another processor and pay significantly less. We do have X clause in our contract. We can get out of it, but we don't want to change those things if we don't have to. And so they were able to negotiate that. And that was a huge win. And that helped them realize, ooh, we really need to have somebody own fraud and payments full time. And so I helped them hire someone. And that happens a lot when I'm working with companies that don't already have someone in place. And for a company of that size, they truthfully, in my opinion, should have had someone a few years before, but especially then eight years ago, it wasn't as common as it is now, and it's still not common everywhere for sure. So this is the proactive tip. And Jared had a good point. He was like, I really think that vendors should be doing the same thing that people are telling employers to do. They should be assessing and do and giving some proactive discounts because merchants are going to be looking to pinch pennies somewhere and they may just decide that that tool isn't worth the money or they may be talking to another merchant that uses the product and realize that that merchant is paying less than half for the exact same thing they are same type of volume etc you guys know that the pricing is subjective in a lot of cases not every vendor actually i have to say i didn't mean to plug this but they are the sponsor so i'll say it I think one of the only core fraud providers I know of that actually post their pricing publicly is Sion. And they also have like some good comparisons and stuff like that. They also provide a a free trial to see if it's at least for their verification product to see if it's helpful for your company before you implement it. I love companies that are doing things a little bit differently because I think it needs to happen. A lot of solution providers in there too, in particular that have been vocal behind closed doors, or at least honest, I should say, that they know that their product isn't that good anymore and that it isn't innovative, but they just, they're making a ton of money by companies just 
keep being okay with the status quo and paying them a lot. Like they're actually like at least one of them is pretty outdated and hasn't innovated much. And they're actually more expensive than some of the companies that provide a chargeback guarantee. So, you know, and a lot of that is companies that don't know better or whatever. But here's what I'm saying, guys. Sorry, I think I'm babbling a little bit because I'm tired, but I think you get the hint. So I know that it's challenging and all of that, but that is customer retention. And we all know whether you're in e-commerce or you're in a solution provider, that it is cheaper, easier, and better to retain current customers than it is to go out and acquire new customers. And because they talk to each other, because they're looking for pennies to pinch, because they're struggling to meet their budgets. And if you want them to add XYZ product service on top of what they're paying you now, it would be really smart to say, you know, we actually just worked with a company similar size and we gave them a better rate than you. So I, we're actually going to move you down to that competitive rate. Do you know how much customer loyalty you would have in that moment and how many people that merchant would tell because it's so unheard of. I mean, this is free consulting advice, guys. I'm giving it, but I think it's worth a lot more than what you're paying for it. Maybe don't do it. You don't have to do it to everyone, but like maybe the biggest companies, especially if your product has stayed stagnant or you were acquired in the last few years and maybe the performance of the tool, you're getting more complaints. Yes, I am thinking of some specific companies, but I'm not saying them. But there are a lot of them that don't want you to leave and they just kind of hope you don't and that you don't notice you're paying a lot. And those aren't good relationships for the long haul. And you guys make more money the longer a merchant stays with you. So I think these are obviously worth taking in. I mean, you, you can't just go do it yourself, right? If you're an account exec, but I think it's worth having some strategy conversations with internally. It's certainly something I could help with at some point, possibly. Then again, like I have to be careful what I offer up even for paid engagements right now, because thankfully I am very busy. But I think that this is something we need to be thinking outside the box. And the worst reason to do something is because that's how it always was done. And that goes for marketing, that goes for sales, that goes for customer retention. And I know it would go a really long way. Also, you're making that fraud leader a hero. You're giving them something that they can take internally and say, hey, this company that we work with for identity verification or our core fraud solution or whatever it is, give them credit, right? I was able to negotiate down and we'll be paying X less this year. Hopefully the fraud manager can negotiate keeping that savings in their budget and they should be able to. And that then tells the executives of above like, well, that's a good company to work for. So at some point, everybody leaves their job, right? And even if they're not fraud professional, but they're a CFO and somebody says, oh, we need a fraud provider for this or, oh, we need somebody new for that. They'll probably have a really good remembrance of that situation and recommend you. So it, it's the long game, but it's worth it in the long run. I think you just have to look at what's worse, right? Losing that merchant altogether or giving them a, brace in, a break in pricing to be competitive with either new customers or their current volume or that maybe you guys pay a lot less in processing fees than you did five years ago because cloud storage is cheaper. Like, I don't know. There's probably a lot there. So that is my advice for solution providers. And one hazard of having merchants listen to that advice is that there might be some of them that's expecting it now. But if I can help solution providers kind of democratize and want to improve and kind of democratize the market where they can't just be like the ones that are like, yeah, we haven't done anything to improve in the last five years for making so much money on companies that don't know that they're paying us too much. 
and that don't know that we haven't done a good job of keeping up and that they have high decline rates and they have high chargebacks. Like that's just it's not good business, in my opinion, and it's not good karma. So if that means that there's a little more ownership on solution providers to provide continuous value, I don't feel bad about that. And I don't think you'd blame me. So that is my advice that I'm not meaning to preach at all, but consider this an add-on to the Merchants Are From Mars Vendors Are From Venus episode that I know so many of you listen to. And now I'll just give a quick update on the Seth Green story. I don't know how many of you guys were even interested in it when I talked about it the first time, but I just think it highlights even what I talked about last week with OpenSea, the biggest NFT marketplace, having so many issues. It's just, there's so much in the wild, wild west with NFTs and crypto that it's kind of interesting from a fraud perspective. I will say first, before I give that update, that the day after I recorded the episode about OpenSea, as, as well as the other lawsuits going on for fraud that wasn't prevented, I noticed because I have that online group, well, the LinkedIn group on for online fraud and payments positions, and I post new jobs in there that I see especially those that are remote. And I try to make them international, but because I'm in the U.S., it's mostly U.S. remote. But OpenSea added two positions of leadership in their trust and safety department. I'm sure it was just a coincidence. It was two days, two or three days after the New York Times article came out. But whatever works, right? Like they are realizing that trust and safety is imperative to their bottom line. It's imperative because you lose a customer. You'll probably lose a current customer and a future customer with these types of headlines. So just a high level overview. Seth Green is an actor, especially known for kind of comedies in like the late 90s, early 2000s. He was one of several actors and celebrities that purchase board eight NFTs. He often talked about his NFT a lot. He was very obsessive about it. He loved the specific one. He had several in his wallet, but that was his favorite. And he'd even gone so far to achieve TV IP rights. So intellectual property for that specific board ape, I can't remember the number. They all have numbers. And then he came up with a name for it. It's like board eight, four, eight, five, five or something. It's not, but it's like something like that. It's like, um, I was just gonna say it's like a serial number or something. But so anyway, he had plans to create a TV show. He'd even named it the White House Tavern, but starring his NFT. It was going to be a cartoon, probably for like Adult Swim or something like that. And then he answered an email that I am sure looked like it came from OpenSea asking him to relog into his account, or maybe it was sophisticated with malware, but it sounds like that probably wasn't the case. And next thing you know, we know that how this story ends, bad actors had drained his account of those items, including this NFT that he had just gotten a TV show for. And what the reason I was talking about it before is because, because he no longer had that NFT in his possession. He no longer owned the IP rights and could no longer have a TV show made off of that ape. So not only did he lose the value of the NFT, but any residual income from that TV show based on the NFT, which I I must be old because I don't know why anyone would want to watch a cartoon about an NFT, but you know, it's a crazy world. So it was stolen via phishing and all that. BuzzFeed did a pretty good job this past week on an article about it. I'm not going to go through the details, but they were able to look at the blockchain log and see that ownership was switched again. So there was ownership from a name that can be assumed and then they explain why they think it's Seth Green's account to someone else. And then that person sold it to a guy who just goes by Mr. Cheese. I'm going to get so many text messages or notes from you guys like Mr. Cheese, seriously, like who are you still... Were you still drunk from some of that wine you had last night at the concert? No, (laughs) can't make this stuff up. 
So Mr. Cheese bought this NFT not knowing it was stolen. Seth Green hired some investigators to find it because on blockchain you can find out who is the owner of an item now. And first he kind of tried the stick route, so to speak, carrot versus stick, of threatening to sue him on Twitter. And then he must have reached out to him privately and brokered a deal where Seth paid an extra $100,000 beyond how much Mr. Cheese had paid for this ape and he got his NFT safe and sound. So I am sure now he's going to have very secure passwords. He may want to put them in a different storage solution or store them on a different site under multiple passwords and MFA and all of that and not ever click a link in an email. But now he can restore his TV show. So all is right with the world. It just goes to show that it's just interesting to me, right? Because a lot of people that are really into crypto and NFT one of the reasons they like it is because it's decentralized. It's not overseen by government or an overarching payment method or card brands like credit cards are, etc. And then it's anonymous. The challenge is they still expect the same consumer protection rights as a centralized payment method. And I don't think enough education has been done on that. I think, unfortunately, life lessons have been and, and unfortunately, like failures and, and life lessons have been the and the education piece for this is why it's important to secure your items. But they don't, it, there's no chargeback process, right? Talked about this last week when there's no chargeback process on certain sets of transactions, whether it's bank deposits and transfers or it's NFTs and crypto. Well, the customer's out on their own. And A, they're not used to that. But B, so you can't put the onus on the customer especially when we know that there are a lot of signals that companies get and that we know it is possible. It's not easy, but it's possible. Prevent those things and to be able to look at the signals and say, hmm, this person has never signed in from this device and this looks fishy here and there and now they're transferring it. Okay, if somebody enters in from account takeover on a new device and the first action they want to do is transfer goods out of that wallet, maybe we need to have some more secure policies there. That's what I would recommend, but that is not what's happened. Also, I think there is also a misconception of crypto and NFT companies that they can't ask for more information. I've had some really good conversations with a solution provider recently that has been working on a lot of Web3 or with a lot of Web3 companies, and they've actually developed some good ways of being able to ask for that information in a way that consumers want to give it. It's almost gamified in a way where it's like, okay, if you want to do this action, you have to give us this piece of information. And if you want to do that, you have to give us this. And it's worked out well with customers. And, and then that gives them enough information to prevent the fraud, because that is something that some companies in crypto and NFTs will say is shrug their shoulders and say, well, you guys want it to be anonymous. So I can't ask you any information to know if it's you. And I don't know if it's you or some guy across the world that's trying to steal your items. That's up to you. That's not realistic to put it all on the customers, it is much more streamlined and scalable to have systems and processes in place on the back end in the companies and it is not impossible. So I just find that fascinating. It's not that I'm personally interested in these things, but I know a lot of you are. Some of you are already in crypto. I'm looking forward to having a couple of guests soon on crypto. I'm just reminding myself I need to reach out to one of them soon to get scheduled. And then also it's just, it's fascinating, right? It's what would happen if we weren't, maybe just maybe chargebacks are a good thing. Ugh, I'm not there yet because there's a lot of things that need to be improved, but 
there is somebody who said that if we didn't have a centralized payment system, if there weren't overarching entities assigning liability, like I mentioned last week, then there'd be so many more lawsuits against e-commerce companies and, and marketplaces and fintechs as well. So all of that said, I'm going to call it an evening, but you know, this ended up being a full episode and I hope that as always, I always hope that you learn something. And I really enjoy hearing from you. And thank you to all of you who have referred this to friends, posted about it on LinkedIn, rated and reviewed it either on Spotify or Apple. I greatly appreciate it. I am so humbled that this little podcast I started has become so successful and a big part of your lives as well as your jobs. But I also love feedback. And just like my client said, I can't do a ton with good feedback. I love it. It makes my day. And sometimes it comes at just the right time when I'm like, oh, I don't know if anyone's going to want to care about this or uh, if I should do it. And then I get an email and I'm like, okay, all right, people like this. I need to keep doing it. But in other ways, like I can't improve if I don't know. So I'd love to hear what you'd like to change or improve upon as well. Okay, guys, have a great rest of your week. And I look forward to bringing you the interview with Jared Price at Income on Tuesday. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.